0: We have been studying the attributes of God from the book of Isaiah, and so I invite you to turn again this morning to that book and to the 42nd chapter where we will hear Isaiah again encouraging us to behold our God. Isaiah 42, and we'll read beginning in verse 5. Isaiah 42, 5. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes and to bring out prisoners from the dungeon. And those who dwell in darkness from the prison. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Father, as we come again to your word in the book of Isaiah this morning, we ask that you speak, that you drive these truths home in our heart uh, with your tender mercy that you enable us to see our sin and to see our Savior and to rejoice in him. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 8 again. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. A few years ago, Mark and David And Toby's brother and I were in India. And one of my most vivid memories from that visit to India is that of graven images. Statues and shrines to all the various Hindu gods were simply everywhere. Alongside country roads, on village street corners, in town courtyards, and so on. And the most memorable one to me was the statue that dominated the skyline in the little village of Arat Lakata, where we stayed for those two weeks. At one end of the main street in the village of a few thousand people was the Baptist Church. And at the other end of the village in the main street was this large statue, maybe 25 feet tall, of a creature that appeared to be part man and part cat. And far from being just a quaint cultural symbol or a photo opportunity for visitors this statue was actually the object of worship and offering and praise for the many people who lived in that village and it was a sad sight one that will I think indelibly remain impressed upon my memory when I think of that village and that land as long as I live But what would I have thought if I'd seen people at the end of Sunday worship at the Baptist church arise from their seats and make their way down the main street of the village to that Hindu shrine so that they might leave some dried fruit or a little sack of rice there at the idol's feet. That would have been far more disturbing, would it not, than just to see the Hindus worshiping there. And it would have aroused, according to our passage this morning, the jealousy of God. That's what verse 8 has to teach us. Our God is jealous for his own glory, especially among his own people. It's one thing, in other words, when professed idol worshippers stand at the feet of a statue or kneel at the base of some totem pole. It's one thing when Hindus give praise to graven images, but it's quite another thing when people who are called by God's own name are found kneeling at the same shrines. And yet that was precisely the state of affairs in the promised land when Isaiah wrote his prophecy. In one quarter of Jerusalem was the great temple of Almighty God with its sacrifices and its priests and its praise and its offerings to the one true God. But in other places in that very same city, people were huddled around their molten images and gathered at their shrines. And similar scenes would have been taking place in most every town round about. In other words, it wasn't simply that their pagan neighbors had shrines and statues, but that the people of God themselves had joined in the chants. And what does God say to such idolatry and blasphemy and confusion committed among his own people? Well, he says, verse 8, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Our God is a jealous God, especially when it comes to the behavior of his own people who are called by his own name. He may allow the Hindus to worship their false gods and even to do so in peace. He may have in ancient times allowed the men of Assyria and Moab and Ammon to bow down before Baal and Chemosh and the other gods that they worshipped. But he will not, he tells us, suffer his own people to give his glory to another. He will not allow those who are called by his name to continue magnifying some other name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. I will not allow my people to continue wavering between two opinions, says the Lord. Indeed, it was part of Isaiah's calling to announce to God's people that their idolatry would not be permitted to continue, as the Lord says here. And that it would not be permitted to continue because God would bring about serious repercussions for it. God's people were about to be dragged into exile with hooks in their noses and made to live for 70 years under the harsh rule of those demonic gods that they had been so eager to worship while they were still at home. It was as if God were saying to them, if you so much enjoy worshiping the gods of the nations, see how you like living among the nations where those gods are the norm. See how you enjoy a life in a land without the one true God. And for 70 years, the people of Jerusalem and the men of Judah did just that. One of the saddest portions of Bible history. The Lord your God is a jealous God. That's what we learn in verse 8. His people... Worship him. And when his people begin bowing down to the little G gods of this world, when his people begin giving their praise to another, the Lord reacts, he says here in this verse. Sometimes he does it fiercely. That's part of the storyline of this book of Isaiah. The Lord is jealous for His glory and He would not much longer suffer His people to worship the gods of the nations. He would respond. He would take back His glory. He would force His people to their knees and they would praise Him yet again, even as we've been reading on Wednesday nights in the book of Ezra. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Behold your jealous God. But what about us? Chances are you don't have a half-man, half-cat statue in your home. Nor do we find images of Baal or Chemosh or Ra or Nebo or Dagon out on our street corners. We don't so much deal in graven images per se in our culture, do we? But do we have idols in our culture? We do. In fact, if we could look at an image of our own hearts on Google Maps, we might find that they look a lot like that main street in that little village in India. At one end, perhaps, of our hearts, the Lord stands tall. We worship Him on Sundays. We say our prayers. We give our tithes, perhaps. Our neighbors know that we're not Hindus, we're not Muslims, but that we claim the name of Jesus Christ. But it may be that on the other end of our hearts, at the other end of the street, There's some person or some goal or some hobby or some possession that stands quite tall on the skyline as well. Some idol that vies for attention and supremacy right alongside the one true God. You may be able to picture the potential idol of your heart even this morning. You may well know, without me even offering any suggestions, what it is or whom it is that threatens to pull you away from God, from his house, that threatens... And tempts you to obey his, disobey his commandments. You may know who or what it is that takes money that is rightly God's from you. Anything that vies with God for the attention or the time or the obedience or the affection that are his alone is an idol. Even if it's not painted in turquoise and gold with a face of a cat and a golden crown on its head. Our idols in America come with different faces. Sometimes they come with the faces of the presidents on them, painted in gray and green. Sometimes our idols come with remote controls and flat screens. Many of them come with lots of apps available for us to download. Our idols are draped in the colors of the team that we've proudly worn since childhood. Some of our idols have chubby little cheeks and toys in their hands and facial expressions that look strangely like our own. None of these things, of course, are sinful in and of themselves, are they? But if my television or computer or internet connection robs me of time that ought to be spent with God or for God, it's become an idol, in many ways no different from the cat man in India that takes people away from God as well. If your gadgets or your games exhilarate you more than the gospel of Jesus Christ exhilarates you, you have an idol. If some romantic interest causes you to fudge your commitment to God's law, you have an idol. If you're more afraid to disappoint your spouse or your parents or your children than you are to disappoint the Lord your God, you have an idol. If your hobbies or your yard or your sports team keep you from being in God's house and serving him with his people, you have an idol. If you seek comfort in food or sex or self-pity when you ought to be seeking it from God in prayer, then you have an idol. If I pitch a fit when things don't go exactly my way or when my routine is interrupted, I have an idol. If we are willing to bend God's rules for the sake of money, we have an idol. If you and I will not stand for what is right because doing so will impact our personal comforts or our networking opportunities or cause people to think poorly of us, we have an idol. If the applause of men is what drives us instead of the approbation of God, the favor of God, then we have an idol. The human heart, says Calvin, is a perpetual factory of idols. The human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. And so the list I've been compiling could surely go on, but it probably doesn't need to go on. Most of us, myself included, know exactly what it is that's on one end of the street of our hearts. We know exactly what it is that we're tempted to place above God on our priority lists. Most of us can see quite well the idols that sit in one corner vying for God with supremacy. Now, we may at the moment be experiencing victory over them. This morning, praise God, many of your idols may be laying face down on the ground like Dagon before the ark of the Lord in the Old Testament. But how prone we are sometimes to pick Dagon back up and to dust him off and to run back to him again in a moment of weakness or spiritual decay. We know that there are certain desires in our lives that are a constant temptation to us, that always stand ready at one end of our hearts. To contend with God for the crown that belongs on his head alone. And what does the jealous God say as he looks across the ring at his graven opponents? What does he say when he finds his children bowing down to little G gods? I will not give my glory to another nor my praise to graven images. I will not allow this to go on. I will either topple your idols or I will bruise your knees so that you're no longer able to bow down to them. But I will not suffer you, my beloved people, to continue in wavering between two opinions. Now that's a comforting thought, isn't it? That God will not allow us always to go on and to give in to our idols. That's a good thing. But it's a sobering thought as well. Because God's prying of the idols from our clenched fists is sometimes painful. In fact, one of the great lessons from the Old Testament prophets, including Isaiah, concerns God's discipline. When God's people begin preferring other gods to himself, when they begin giving his glory to something else, God often plies the rod of discipline. That's why the people of Judah and Jerusalem were about to go into exile, because God is a jealous God, and he would not permit them to continue with their idols. He bruised them in order that he might eventually cure them of their idolatry. The same was true, as we've seen on Wednesday nights, even after they returned from those 70 years in exile, that horrible captivity. Instead of rebuilding the temple of the Lord in Haggai 1, The remodeling of their own private houses took priority for many of God's chosen people. And so God, in his jealousy, responded to them with discipline. He sent economic recession and he sent agricultural failure in order to snap the people out of the idolatry that was connected with their own comforts and possessions and homes, the discipline of the Lord. It's all throughout the scriptures, but I'm not sure it's a subject that we modern Christians think about perhaps as often as we should. I know we teach on it when we come to books like Haggai or when we read about discipline in the book of Hebrews, for instance, but I'm not sure if most of us, myself included, have an instinct when we find ourselves in difficulty to ask, is this perhaps God's way of getting my attention? Is God in this difficulty maybe kicking over my idols or encouraging me to do so? Is he wounding me in order that he might eventually cure me of some idolatry? Am I under the discipline of God, who is jealous for all my affection? Now, I'm not arguing or even insinuating that every trial that you face is somehow God's chastisement for some sin or God breaking down of some idol in your life. Far from it. But what I am saying is that the Bible teaches that the Lord is jealous and that he will not allow worship and honor that are rightfully his to be consistently given to our Hobbies, or our jobs, or our cars, or our houses, or our kids, or our personal appearance, or our televisions, or our love interests, or our gadgets, or what have you. And to the extent that you and I continue to give our highest affections to someone or something besides the Lord, we should not be surprised to find the Lord kicking over our idols, sometimes in ways that are quite painful to us. He does it, according to Hebrews 12, because he loves his children and does not want us to follow our idols all the way into the pit of hell. But he also throws our idols down or sometimes slaps the hands with which we serve them because he's a jealous God. Because, as he says, I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. But let me say this as well about God's jealousy. God's jealousy may be painful sometimes toward us, yes, but God's jealousy is a good thing. It's a good thing. And we're not accustomed to hearing the word jealous in a positive light, and understandably so. So much human jealousy is, frankly, unwarranted jealousy. Because our jealousy is usually over rights and privileges and prerogatives and possessions that God never says we actually deserve. Often we are jealous, in other words, over things that really belong to God and not to us. And even when we are jealous about the right things, so often we're jealous in the wrong ways. Human jealousy, in other words, is often synonymous with paranoia or anger or revenge and so on. Therefore, jealousy in our world gets a pretty bad rap. But there are things over which we ought to be jealous, are there not? If you're married, think about your marriage. I know it's true that a man can be so overly jealous concerning his wife that he practically holds her prisoner. But if a man sees another man actively trying to harm or seduce his wife, is he not right to be jealous for her and to react strongly in her defense? Don't we applaud men who jealously defend their marriages in that way? We do. We say the same thing about our children. Again, it's possible that we parents can be overbearing and overprotective, but it's a good thing that parents are jealous for their children, that they want to know where their children are on a Friday night or what they're being taught in school or who's chaperoning the out-of-town trip. That's a good thing. We're rightly jealous for our children's safety and their worldview and their morality and so on. And if we are rightly jealous over precious things like marriage and children, How much more ought God be jealous of something that far outshines our families and our children? How much more should God be jealous for his own glory? There's nothing in the world more valuable to God than his own glory and praise, is there? And there's actually nothing that is better for us and our own well-being than that we find ourselves at the foot of his throne worshiping him for who he is and giving him that glory. Therefore, there's nothing worth defending like the glory and honor of God. There's nothing that is more valuable to God. There's nothing that's more vital to us. And so when we read that God is a jealous God, when we hear him say, I will not give my glory to another, we're not hearing the words of an egomaniac or an overzealous tyrant. We're hearing the words of one who is defending what is most valuable in the universe, the name and the reputation and the honor and glory of the universe's Maker. It's good that God is a jealous God. It's good that He will not give His glory to another. In fact, just observe those countries where it is common for God's glory to be given to another and see that what they live with is not good. Go to India and see if it's good. It's not. What is good for God and what is good for man is that God defends His honor and that we give it to the one who deserves it. It's good when we see Jesus turning over the tables in the temple because He will not allow sinful men to rob His Father of His glory and turn His house into a marketplace. And it's good when we join Jesus and the Father Himself in being jealous for God's glory. There is nothing more worth defending, fighting for, praying about, preaching towards raising children for, teaching Sunday school for, even dying for, than that God would be praised and honored and worshiped to the ends of the earth in the way that he so richly deserves to be. And I hope that we all join with our jealous God in the pursuit of his fame. It is good that God is jealous. But now I want to ask a question. Why is God jealous? Why is God jealous? What is it about God that makes him jealous for his glory? What is it about God that makes his glory so worth fighting for? What traits in the character of God make him the kind of being who can rightly demand worship and praise from all things living and who can justly chastise those who fail to give it? Why is God jealous? Well, let me give you two answers from here in Isaiah 42. First, God is jealous because he alone is self-existent. He is jealous because he alone is self-existent. I am the Lord, he says in verse 8, that is my name. And why does he say that? Why does he emphasize his name before he tells us about his jealousy? Well, because his name there, the Lord, in all caps, denotes his self-existence. His name denotes the fact that he did not have a beginning, that he did not, that will not have an end, that no one created God, that he's always been and that he exists in and of himself and is dependent on no one. That's what his name means. When you read the Old Testament and come across the word LORD in all caps, you're reading the English equivalent of God's memorial name that he gave to Moses, spelled with the Hebrew letters YHWH, usually pronounced either Yahweh or Jehovah. But it's not the pronunciation of God's name that's so important, it's the meaning of those four Hebrew letters. What do the four Hebrew letters Y-H-W-H mean? Well, that word means, as we read in the third chapter of Exodus, simply, I am. That's God's memorial name, I am, and that name tells us something about God's self-existent character think of it like this there is no one else who can describe him or herself with those two unadorned English words I am you can't say that I can't say that I can say I am 34 years old I can say I am from Mississippi I am of German extraction I am the pastor of Pleasant Ridge Baptist Church but I cannot simply say I am period Because there was a time when I was not. And you cannot say I am, period, for the same reason. There was a time when none of us and nothing that we see in this world existed. Each of us had a beginning. Each of us will have an end in this world. And so when we describe our existence in this world, we have to add caveats and descriptors to the words I am. We have to add times and places and dates and origins and so on to the words I am. But God neither must nor can he speak in those terms. He cannot say where he is from because he is not from anywhere. He simply is. He cannot say how long he has existed because he never had a beginning. He is. He cannot even speak about where he is in the universe because He is present in the universe everywhere at once. And so there's no single descriptive word that can adequately be used in describing the existence of God. There's no word that you can add to the phrase, I am. He simply is. That's the meaning of His name in verse 8a. I simply am. And here's the point. In that regard... The Lord stands in stark contrast to all the various idols to which men are tempted to ascribe glory in the second half of the verse. I am the Lord. I am the self existent one. I won't let you give my glory to something that is not what I am. If the idols of Israel or India could speak this morning, they would not say to you, I am. Because there was a time when that giant statue in Aratlakata, for instance, was nothing but several large blocks of wood. And there was a time when those blocks of wood were trees. And there was a time when those trees were saplings. And there was a time when those saplings did not exist at all. And there will soon be a time when the wood will rot and return to the dust and that idol will be no more. And yet look at all the men and women bowing down before it as though this temporary block of wood had the key to their existence or their salvation. It's insanity, isn't it? To worship anything besides I am. But we can be just as insane, can't we? Because all of our beloved gadgets and jobs and lovers and hobbies and retirement accounts are as temporary as the blocks of wood in India. There was a time when all the things that we think we cannot live without did not exist and had never been dreamt of. And there will be a time very soon when all of these things will be no more forever. And yet look at all the men and women and children crowded around all the temporary stuff of this earth as though we might eventually find the person or object or relationship or place, or career, or financial plan that will finally grant us lasting and true satisfaction. It makes no sense, does it? Human beings created to have relationship with God, whose name is I Am, seeking fulfillment from things that are as new on the scene as we are—things that will soon ex- cease to exist forever. It makes no sense. Our idols are not as great and sufficient as we sometimes allow ourselves to believe. In the book, book of Deuteronomy, they are called new gods who came lately. That's exactly what they are, isn't it? I love that phrase, new gods who came lately. The things that we worship have not stood the test of time like God. They did not exist before the world began. And they will cease to exist and be wholly unhelpful to us when the world ends. But God is always the same. He has been our dwelling place in all generations. He is without beginning and he is without end. He's wholly unique in the world. He is the eternal self-existent one. The only one therefore worthy of worship and trust and ultimate dependence. And when God sees men worshiping new gods who came lately... Rather than turning to the one who's been our dwelling place in all generations, his jealousy jealousy is justly aroused. I am the Lord. That is my name, he says. I am the self-existent one. I am the one in whom you should place your hope. I am the one to whom you should pour out your affection. I am the one who is here when all of these other things were not. And I am the one who will remain when they are all balled up and thrown into the fire, like yesterday's newspaper. I am. And I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. God is jealous because he and he alone is eternal and self-existent. But secondly, God is jealous in Isaiah 42 because he himself created all the things that we are tempted to worship. God is jealous because... We are worshiping or are tempted to worship things that he himself made. We are tempted to worship the creature rather than the creator. Now notice this in Isaiah 42. Who is this God who thunders in verse 8? I will not give my glory to another. Who is he? Well, according to verse 5, he is God the Lord. Who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, and who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it? God created, in other words, everything we see, including the things and the people that we are tempted to turn into idols. And I submit to you that this is one reason why God is jealous. One day in India, we drove by a large tree had not been hewn down into an idol yet. Just a tree planted by the roadside, and it had decorations of various kinds draped all around it. And our host pointed out to us that the local people in that village actually worshipped that tree. It's amazing, isn't it? You say to yourself, how can people bow before a tree and be amazed with a tree and not bow before and be amazed with the one who created the tree? Increasingly, that precise question is becoming relevant in our own country. But the same sorts of creator-creation questions can be posed even closer to home, can't they? How can church people be so enamored with sports figures and celebrities and politicians that they prefer to read and talk about them even more than the one who created them? How can Christian young men bow their souls to the woman on the computer screen and in so doing totally disregard the law of him who created that woman and who created sex to be beautiful? How can we do that? How can so many older people in our culture be practically glued to their television sets when the living God is so ready to speak to them from his word? It makes no sense, does it? Bypassing the creator in favor of something which he has created? But that's just the point. Idolatry does make no sense. Because anyone or anything to whom you might turn for ultimate satisfaction or fulfillment was made by God. And therefore, doesn't it stand to reason that the one who created the woman, or the food, or the celebrity, or the electronic principles that make television possible, doesn't it stand to reason, I say, that the one who created all those fantastic things and created the human beings who have created them, has far more ability to bring you joy and purpose and satisfaction and meaning and fulfillment than even the good things he's created. Isn't that so? Doesn't the creator have more that we should admire than the things that he's made? To bring this principle down into a very practical illustration, let me ask you, which is more amazing and which is more worthy of praise? The iPad 3? Or the genius of a mind who created the iPad 3? And which is more amazing, the creator of the iPad 3 or the creator of the creator of the iPad 3? Do you see? No matter what you find in this world, no matter where you turn in this world, all the things that are so amazing in this life and which we are therefore tempted to turn into idols were either created directly by God or they were created by someone who is created by God. And so no matter where you turn in the universe for happiness and no matter how much pleasure or fulfillment or satisfaction you may get from a given person or thing, it's always true that the glory of the one who created that person or thing must of necessity far outstrip any enjoyment, any delight, any worship that you could ascribe to even the most brilliant of his creations. God is where it's really at. God is the fascinating one. Therefore, we must learn... Yes, to enjoy all the wonders that God and man have made, but never to worship them. We must make use of all that God has given us in this amazing world, but not to think for a moment that any of those created things can ultimately satisfy us. We should marvel at the iPad 3, for instance, but not be addicted to it. We should be thankful for the television, but never sit mesmerized in front of it like the pagans in front of their statues. The one to sit mesmerized before is the creator of the creator of the television, the creator of the creator of the iPad, and so on. And the same thing can be said about the chocolate cake or the perfect spiral or the new dress or the new sports car or the fabulously decorated living room. We should take place, take pleasure in... And appreciate and thank God for all of these things. He made them all, we're told in 1 Timothy 6, for our enjoyment. But there's a great difference between enjoying all that God made and abusing all that God made by turning it into a replacement for God himself. There is a great difference between enjoying all that God made and abusing All that God made by turning it into a replacement for God Himself. The moment we begin to think we cannot live without a certain something, the moment it begins to pry us away from God's house, the moment we are willing to sin for its sake, the moment that thing supplants the Bible's place in our daily routine, the moment we become angry for being deprived of it, the moment we turn to it instead of God for comfort. The moment we begin to think that our life would be solved if we just had X, we have ceased merely enjoying the creation and begun ascribing it glory that belongs only to its creator. And what fools we are if we direct our attention and desire to mere created things when their glorious maker calls out to us from his word and offers us relationship with himself. What a fool I am for so often being caught up with the stuff of this world when relationship with God is readily available to me in Jesus and in this book. What a fool I am. And how quickly when I do that do I arouse the jealousy of my maker. That's the main point I'm trying to make. God is a jealous God. And when he sees men and women giving to creative, created things, giving their lives to created things, giving their praise to created things, rather than to their creator. Whether it be on the side of the road in India or in a comfortable living room in America, he is justly jealous. Thus says God the Lord, verse 5, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring and who gives breath to the people in it and spirit to those who walk in it. Verse 8, I will not give my glory to another or my praise to graven images. God is jealous, to put it simply, because it makes no sense whatsoever for men and women to prefer created things over the one who created them. Now, let me ask finally, what does God do with his jealousy? What does he do with his jealousy? How does the jealous God respond to idolatry? Well, as we've already seen, sometimes he responds with painful discipline toward his people. That, as I said, is a theme in the book of Isaiah. The prophet predicted throughout this book that God would drive his people into exile in order to break them from their idols. So that's one response of the jealous God. Discipline. But it's not the response that the Lord focuses on here in chapter 42. In fact, I would go so far as to say that discipline is not even the main response of God to men and women giving his praise to graven images. So the question is, what is God's primary response to a world that is enamored with idols? Well, The answer, I believe, is in verses 6 and 7. Listen to what he says. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. That verse, Those verses are not written to you or to me or to the people that Isaiah was preaching to. They are written to someone else who's going to come and help them out of their blindness out of their dungeons and their prisons. But I want you to see the connection between verses 6 and 7 and verse 8. God is going to send someone to provide light to his benighted people and even to the idolatrous nations in verse 6. He is going to send someone to bring the people out of the darkness and the dungeons of their sin, verse 7, and give them eyes to see spiritual truth and real beauty. He's going to send someone to help them. And why is he going to do these things? What is his motivation for rescuing blind, sinful people in verses 6 and 7? Well, he tells us in verse 8. His motivation for rescuing blind, sinful people in verses six and seven is because verse eight, he will not give his glory to another, nor his praise to get graven images. That's why he sends them help in verses six and seven. That's why he sends this helper, because he will not suffer his people to continue in their idolatry and their sin, verse eight. And so the question is, what does God do in it with his jealousy? What does he do when he sees men and women giving his glory to another and his praise to graven images? What does he do when he finds Jews and Gentiles alike walking in darkness, groping for all sorts of graven images that they think will provide the answers to life and they think will grant them lasting satisfaction and they think will meet their primary needs? What does he do? Well, yes, sometimes he applies the rods of discipline. He, He breaks our ankles so that we will not run headlong over the cliff. But even more than that, verses 6 and 7, he sends light into the darkness of those idolaters. He sends someone to salve their blinded eyes. He sends a servant to bring them up out of the dungeon where the idols hold sway. That is the response of God's jealousies to send us a helper, to send us a servant, to send us one who can help us see just how foolish we've been and who can woo us away from the magnetic power of our idols. He sends a helper to idolaters. Isn't that a merciful response? Isn't God good? He could, in his jealousy, simply raise his iron scepter and sweep us and our idols off the face of the earth and into the lake of fire with a single stroke, and he would be just in doing so. But instead, his great response to mankind's idolatry is to send us a helper, a servant. Who can pry us away from our dumb idols and bring us back to God? And let me ask you then, who is the servant that God speaks of and to whom He speaks in verses six and seven? Who is it that He is appointed as a covenant to the people of Israel and as a light to the nations? Who is it that opens blind eyes, verse seven, and sets the captives free? Well, Isaiah has a good deal to say in this portion of his prophecy about how after this exile that he's been preaching, God would send his Jews a helper to set them free from their exile and their oppression. We've been seeing that again in the book of Ezra on Wednesday night. Someone would come to bring the Jews out of exile and back to their homeland. Is that who he's speaking of here? Here, I believe, Isaiah's prophecy rises even higher than the one who would bring the Jews back to their land. Here he speaks of a servant who will do even more than restore the Israelites to their homeland. Here he speaks of one who will bring light to the nations. Who is that? Who is the one whom God sends in verses 6 and 7? Whom does he appoint as a covenant to the people and as a light to the nation? Who is the Lord's servant? Well, it is, of course, the Servant of the Lord, capital S, about whom Isaiah also has so much to say in this latter half of his book. It is the Messiah himself who is being spoken of and spoken to in these verses. Isaiah 42, 6 and 7 is about Jesus and about the good news that he brings to people, Jew and Gentile, who are held captive, not only in Babylon, but by idols of every sort. He is the solution to our idolatry. He is the servant that God would send. He is God's response to a world full of graven images. He is the one who can ultimately break us free from all our, our obsessions and addictions. He is the one who will ensure that God's people do not go on giving God's glory to another or his praise to graven images. His coming into the world to rescue sinners is, therefore, the overflow. Of God's jealousy did you ever think of that that Jesus is the overflow of God's jealousy that the incarnation and the cross and the resurrection are the response of a jealous God God sent Jesus to save us from our sins and idols yes because he's merciful He doesn't want us to perish. But he also sent Jesus into the world to save us from sins and idols, verses 6 and 7, precisely because he's jealous, verse 8. And he doesn't want us to continue with those idols. He doesn't want us to continue giving his glory to graven images. That's what the juxtaposition of verses 6 and 7 alongside verse 8 teaches us. The gospel is an overflow of God's mercy and his jealousy. And that's why Jesus opens blind eyes. That's why he brings prisoners out of the dungeon in verse 7 and 8. So they'll begin, verse 8, giving glory to God who so richly deserves it. Many of us can identify, I think, with the descriptions here in verse 7 of idolatry and sin. We know what it was to be spiritually blind. We can remember what it was to sit in church as children or adults perhaps, or to have someone trying to speak to us about the Lord and none of it made any difference to us at all. We couldn't see our danger. We couldn't see the loveliness of Christ. We couldn't see the goodness of the good news. And we also know all too well what it is not only to be blind, but to be held captive by sin and to live our lives in a spiritual dungeon. We can look back and see how ugly and how deeply entrenched were our various sins. We can remember The places we went and the things we watched and the words we used and the thoughts we thought and the things we put into our bodies or for those of us who grew up religious we can look back and see how pharisaical and proud and self-righteous we were and how ugly that was in God's sight as well yes we struggle with idols now but when we lived in those spiritual dungeons there were dagons of various kinds all over the place everywhere we looked and who was it that brought us up out of the darkness? Who was it that opened the eyes to see the vanity of our idols? Was it not the servant of the Lord that Isaiah speaks of here? Was it not the lamb who was slain? Was it not the son of God who came? Weren't your eyes opened at the foot of the cross of Jesus? Isn't that where it took place? Isn't he the solution to idolatry? He is. And let me ask you this. Isn't he the solution to our continued struggles with bowing before created things rather than the creator? And isn't he the greatest motivation for kicking over whatever idols remain in your heart? How can I live for football or salary or vacations or other people when the servant of the Lord has come into the world and has shed his own blood for my soul? How could I allow money or hobbies or fashion statements to make my decisions and spend my money for me? How can I worship at the altars of success or pornography or food? I've been bought with a price, the precious blood of God's own dear son. And as we sang, love so amazing, so divine demands not part of my attention, but my soul, my life, my all. Do you see? If God was already jealous for our affection, the fact that he's purchased us with his son's own blood makes him all the more so. The fact that we have been bought with a price means that God has an even higher claim on our lives and our affections than we thought. And the fact that he opened our blind eyes and brought us out of the dungeon and smashed So many of the graven images that used to destroy our souls is all the more reason why we should continue turning away from whatever idols are left. So hear him say to you one more time, you who've been loved by the Lord and bought with his son's precious blood. Hear him say it to you one more time. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images.